Hi, my name is Jess. I serve as one of the leaders here at the Point Church at Federal Way. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to one of our recent sermons. I hope that as you listen to this sermon, that you feel seen and heard and known by the God who created the universe. Here at the Point Church, that's what we strive to do. Make people feel seen, heard, and known so they see, hear, and know Jesus. I hope over these next few minutes that you truly begin to feel him and see him and know him. And if you ever have any questions, feel free to visit our website, thepointfw.com. Be sure to note, the point has an E at the end. We'd love to get in contact with you and answer any questions you have. All right, let's dive into the message. You guys can have a seat. It is nice to see some new faces, some returning faces. If you guys don't know me, my name is Stephen. I serve as one of the leaders here uh, at the Point Church. And, and like every week when I get the chance to open God's Word, I want us uh, to think of a couple things. First, I want us to, to feel seen and heard and known by the God of the universe. As we look into His Word, we want to know that He does, that He sees us and He hears us and He knows us and He cares for us. The second piece, I want us to see, hear, and to know him better through his words. I want us to be able to say, man, I, leaving today, knowing what I have heard, I know Jesus better. I see Jesus more. I hear more of his voice in my heart. So today we're going to continue our series called That You May Believe as we walk through the story of Jesus through the book of John. John is a gospel or a biography of Jesus' life written by one of his closest friends. And we have been walking through this now ever since we became a church six months ago. And it's been a great adventure. We've made some stops along the way in Genesis and in Exodus. And we're going to make a few more stops along the way before we get to the end because we want to see the full story of Jesus, the story of the Bible telling the story of Jesus. We're going to be in chapter 7. And if you were here last week, you heard me say that I would never, if I was choosing passages to preach... And I, well, we weren't just going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I would never stop in chapter 7. It's just not one that I would stop. It doesn't mean it's a bad one. It just means it's not one of the, the attractive ones. It's not one of the sexy ones, right? It's not one of the ones that you're like, yeah, I definitely want to dig into that. So it's such a fun one. It's a fun chapter to preach because I get the chance to dig deep into a passage of Scripture that probably none of us have taken a lot of time to study in. So we're going to be in John chapter 7. We'll start, uh, actually we'll hit verses 6 and 7, and then we'll be in verse 14 in just a second. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them. We'll be reading out of the Christian Standard Bible if you, if you have your phone and want to look at exactly what we're doing, or we'll have the words on the screen. But I can remember a day in seventh grade when I really, really didn't want to go to school. So because I was a 90s kid and I grew up on Nickelodeon and Disney shows, I did what all those kids did, and I faked like I was sick. I gave a little cough, and maybe I went to the bathroom and made some throwing up noises. I'm not really sure exactly what I was doing, but I remember vividly that I was home from school. So my mom headed off to work. My brothers headed off to school. And as soon as I heard the van going down the driveway, I was downstairs. I was downstairs, and the TV was on, and I was uh, about, I made my way to uh, a day of full of rebellion, the ultimate rebellion for 90s Christian kids, and that was watching MTV. 
You see, I wasn't allowed to watch MTV because the devil was in MTV. So pretty much any time that my parents were gone and I wanted to be rebellious, that was where I went. I would turn there to see the latest pop culture references. I would, I would watch the real world because I thought that was such an awesome show. And then I would see the hottest music videos of the day. In fact, there was one show that I really loved. It was called Making the Video. And making the video actually impacted me so much that I, I later went to film school and I studied how to make music videos because I loved watching the behind the scenes. So to give you a little bit of context here, I'm, I'm, I'm about 13 years old. I'm about five foot seven, which is not much shorter than I am now. I'm five foot seven, but I weigh like 100 pounds. Um, I have bleached blonde hair. I wear almost exclusively tank tops because I think that I look good in them and I'm, you know, muscle bound and really they're just falling all over me, even though they're like the smalls from Walmart. We're living in Detroit, Michigan uh, on 11 Mile and McCormick. Uh, and so uh, my hero, or I, sorry, I was just discovering rap music. So obviously my hero was Eminem. Right? Eminem grew up three miles down the road from where I was, and he wore white ribs, tank tops like me, and he had blonde hair like me. Uh, it was more me having hair like him. But anyway, uh, so there are pictures. It happened. I'm not going to show them. You will not see them because I would like some modicum of respect from you guys as we get through the word of God today. But in, in season two of making the video, we have Eminem's famous, wonderful song, called The Real Slim Shady, and the hook went a little like this. I'm going to rap it for you guys so that you can really get the beat. You ready? I'm not going to rap for you guys. That would be embarrassing for everyone, uh, but the, the lyrics say this. The hook of the song says, I'm Slim Shady. Yes, I'm the real shady. All you other Slim Shadies are just imitating, so won't the real Slim Shady please stand up? Please stand up. Please stand up, because everything has to have threes, right? Uh, like good Baptist preachers, too. So I, I bet that uh, you didn't, that if you had a bingo card of, like, things that would happen on the Lord's Day, that your preacher, uh, quoting Eminem, was not on your bingo card. If it was, you can give it a nice big stamp there. But um, this whole thing, this whole idea uh, stems from this music video where uh, there were all these extras who had white tank tops, and they had bleach blonde hair, and they were, like, on an assembly line, and... and and Eminem is, is saying, like, I'm the real Shady. And he was talking about who he was, right? He was telling everybody who the real Slim Shady actually was. And so as I was coming to this text, I was coming at chapter 7, and I just kept thinking, won't the real Jesus Christ please stand up? Because really chapter 7 is Jesus saying, hey, here's who I really am. And it's everybody else asking all these questions. Are you this? Are you that? Are you this? Who are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you crazy? Last week we talked about the fact that Jesus really didn't give us room to think anything other than that he was Lord. Jesus didn't give us room to think anything other than that he was God. If he wasn't God, if he wasn't Lord, he was a liar or he was a lunatic. So we're going to continue down this road to look at who Jesus really is. See, Jesus' own brothers, they didn't even believe in him. Jesus' own brothers even had questions. So I want to start actually in last week's passage. I want us to see who Jesus says he is early on because I think that he lays out a really good idea. He gives us a really good reckoning and resume for himself. So we're going to start in John chapter 7. We'll be in verse 6. He says this. Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it that its works are evil. 
So last week, we learned that Jesus is a sin exposer. I mentioned this last week, but I think it merits touching again. You see, Jesus, with his perfection, he showed us how sinful we are. Jesus showed us that it was not only actions that mattered, but it was also intention. It's not just execution, but it's why we execute an act that matters. He taught things such as looking at a woman with lust is the same as having an affair with her and committing adultery. He taught us that being angry with someone was the same as murdering them. He showed that to be honored, we must humble ourselves, and that for us to be first, we must be willing to be last. Jesus showed us that being around the lowly and the weak was preferable to surrounding yourself with those in power and the strong and the mighty. Jesus exposed the depth of our wickedness in our love for money and our dependence on the security that it brings. Because he talked about money a lot. He not only talked about how to handle our money, but he used money as a way to teach us other things because he knew that we, our security, that us, who we are, is so much tied to our financial security. Jesus wanted us to see how our sin nature isn't just exposed in not breaking the Ten Commandments. No, he dove so much deeper. He dove into showing how our sin affects every single thing in our lives. There's not a place that sin doesn't touch. And frankly, I don't really think we like thinking about that. I sure don't. So my first question today is, how do we respond when Jesus exposes sin? Last week, I kind of laid out that there's, there's two responses. The first is that we can hate him. Because he holds up his perfection as a mirror against our tarnished lives. We can shrink back from the light of his goodness and hide in the shadow of deceit. Or we can run to him. And we can throw ourselves at his feet and we can ask to be cleansed. Now, I would love to tell you that I choose that second one. I would love to tell you that, yeah, 100% of the time when Jesus exposes sin in my life, I'm like, thank you, Lord, for doing that. Let me run to you. Let me have you cleanse me, but that's, that ain't it for me. When our sin is exposed, thankfulness, though, is actually the correct response. Our goals as followers of Christ is to look and act and be more like Jesus. And sin keeps us from accomplishing that goal. So just like when it's pointed out that your ice cream habit is probably why you can't reach your fitness goals, when Jesus points out sin, when Jesus points out what it is that's taking us away from being like him, we should be thankful. But we're not. So how do you respond when Jesus exposes your sin? Let's move on. Let's see more about who Jesus is, who he said he was in John 7. In John 7, verse 14, it says, When the festival was already half over, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, how is this man so learned since he hasn't even been trained? And Jesus answered them, my teaching isn't mine, but it's from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And there is no righteousness in him. Guys, this is such a dense passage. Jesus here has every right to demand glory, right? He's God. Jesus could say, look, whatever I say goes because that's what I said. I said it. I created things. I'm the creator. 
I'm God, listen. But here Jesus is doing something that's incredible. Something that doesn't make sense. And in order for us to be thankful to Jesus for exposing sin, we have to submit to him. Because here Jesus shows that he is a submission encourager. And that's what's amazing about this passage. Jesus here is modeling submission for us. He, he didn't have to submit to the Father. He was the Father. He was one with him. He didn't have to deflect glory to the Father because he was one with him. He could have come and demanded it, and rightfully so, but because he came to show us what it looks like to be perfectly human, he showed us what it's like to submit to God, the Father. And that's amazing. For God himself to submit himself modeled us Model for us what submitting to God's authority looks like. Jesus chose submission because submission is a choice. And it's the same for us. We have to submit to God and his will and his ways. See, God knows that through submission, everything in our lives improves. Our relationships improve because we love others and we do unto them as we would have them do unto us. When we submit to God, we become better parents because we see God as a good father and we learn how to treat our children. Our souls and our bodies, they get the rest that they need because we have a regular rhythm of Sabbath. Life would be, if we submitted to God, as Jesus says, life to the full. A life lived completely fulfilled. But we have to choose submission. See, God's not going to force you. Submission in our vernacular has that connotation, right? Has that, that forced connotation or that, that beating down or, 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 or that wearing someone down until they finally submit. But Jesus offers a completely different definition. It's the choice to give your life to someone who cares for you because he knows you and because he loves you and he knows what you were created for. But we really don't know the benefit of submission until we actually submit. We cannot see the value until we experience it. And as a soccer coach, I feel this intimately. As a soccer coach, I'm, I'm not infallible, so that, that kind of breaks down the metaphor. But if you'll stick with me, I promise you that we'll, we'll tie it up with a nice bow. So as a coach, I put together a system of play that I want my players to do. There's not just a system that I want the 11 girls on the field to accomplish, but also the subs on the bench, and also the JV girls who train with us every day. If everyone is doing what they are supposed to do, if each player submits to the system, then the team will function how it's supposed to. But if any part of the team is unsubmissive to the plan, then things go poorly. If we're not getting the reps that we need in practice, we're not going to be able to do it in the game. If our subs aren't ready to encourage our players, if they're not ready to come off the bench and make a difference, if the 11 girls on the field aren't working in concert together, things go badly. I'll often ask a player to do something that they're not comfortable doing because it's just not part of their game, but it's what the team needs. I'll actually ask them to go against their instincts in order to build towards a vision that maybe they can't see but I can. It's a beautiful moment when the entire thing comes together, when that ball is just pinging around, and when everything falls into line, the plan shows itself. It becomes a beautiful machine. Doesn't mean we always win. Doesn't always mean things will go perfectly. 
but the team becomes more and more like the vision we set it out to be. Submitting to God's the same way. We may not see where God is taking us, but he does. Following him will, he will ask us to go against our instincts because our ways are nothing like his ways. The path of submission will ask us to do things that we're uncomfortable with because they're just not in our wheelhouse. So often God is going to call us as, we, as he shapes us and molds us. He's going to pull us into places that we don't want to be because he created us for more. I think that's, that's the, the biggest tool of the enemy is to keep us in a box, to keep us from being who God created us to be, telling us, well, that's just how you were born or that's just how you are or I'm just not gifted like that or I'm just not talented like that. And God's calling you to do so much more. And if you would submit to his will and his ways, he's going to ask you to do some things that you don't like, but it's going to fulfill his ways and his vision for your life and for his glory. And it's going to be ultimately for your good. When we fully submit to God and his will and his ways, we begin to see the beauty of what life was supposed to be from the beginning for us. So my second question is, how do you react when Jesus encourages submission in your life? For those of us who have not, who, 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 sorry, who have put our faith in Christ, we literally have the God of the universe taking habitation inside of us. Ephesians 2.22 tells us that. His spirit dwells within us and moves on us to submit. It encourages us to be more like Jesus. But how do we respond when that spirit prompts us? We cannot grow in sanctification. That means being more like Jesus without submission. Our will is too strong. And our nature is too unlike his. For those of us who haven't put our faith in Jesus, you cannot walk through the door of salvation without submission, without submitting to the truth that Jesus is the only way to be saved from sin, without submitting to the fact that you cannot save yourself, and without submitting to the fact that Jesus is Lord and Savior, salvation is unattainable for you. For all of us, when Jesus encourages submission, we should lean in. We should choose to lay down our lives, our works, our ways, our plans, and to take up his ways, his works, his plans. So after having seen Jesus as a sin exposer and having seen Jesus as a submission encourager, there's another key way that I really want us to see the real Jesus. Chapter 7, verse 19 says this, didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You have a demon, the crowd responded. Who is trying to kill you? I performed, I'm going to give a little attitude because I think Jesus had a little attitude here. I performed one work. And you were all amazed, Jesus answered. This is why Moses has given you circumcision. Not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, you are angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. Jesus was pretty mad here, and, and to give you context about why he's mad, remember in, in chapter 5, Jesus had healed a man who had been lame for almost 40 years. And the Jews, the church folk, they were angry about it because it was on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, look, you don't get it. Let me tell you about breaking the law. And he says, you've got the, Moses, the law of Moses, right, the Ten Commandments? 
Isn't one of them, don't murder folks? You want to murder me? Their response is not great. They're ticked, right? They say, you're demon-possessed. Who wants to kill you? When behind their hands, they're like, we did. We, we were the ones. Like, that was us, right? This, this passage is really dense because there's a lot of, like, Jewish law being talked about. And I really want us to kind of to, to dig into it really quickly. You see, we've been, uh, as we've been discussing the Jews, right, I want you to know that the, when, when John uses the word Jews, he really means the Jewish establishment, and they were trying to kill Jesus because of what I just told you guys about. But really, they wanted to kill Jesus because he was shaking up their establishment. They didn't like that he was changing things in their minds. He, is ele he elevated himself to equality with God. And then they got mad at Jesus because they had elevated their laws to equality with God's laws. And Jesus broke their laws, not God's laws. So it's very, it's kind of confusing here. And to, to make it even more, a little more confusing, he starts talking about circumcision. Now, if you're not an expert on the Jewish law, let me explain this to you. So the law tells us that on the eighth day of life, a boy is supposed to be circumcised. Well, if you know how counting works, that means that every eight days, sometimes there's a Saturday, right? And Sabbath for the Jewish people was sundown on Friday till sundown on Saturday, so if a boy happened to be born Thursday, Friday, somewhere in that range, the eighth day, the day he's supposed to be circumcised, would have been Saturday, during Sabbath. But they're not allowed to do anything. So what happens, right? Did God trick them? Did God say like, hey, I'm going I, to let them think that they're obeying the law, but they're really going to break the law because they're going to circumcise on the Sabbath. Like, well, you know, do you break the law of circumcision or do you break the law of Sabbath? They had to do one or the other. And Jesus here is saying, no, you can't break God's law by following God's law. That's not how God's law works. He's not a God of confusion. He's a God of order. So what Jesus is, is saying here is, is, yes, the law of Moses said on the eighth day to do that. The law also says that on the seventh day you rest, seventh day of every week. When those two days coincide, it's okay to obey God's law. You won't be breaking God's law. You may be breaking man's law, the 39 things in, that the Mishnah uh, defined work as, but you won't be breaking God's law. And then Jesus says, look, God sent me to heal the broken. God sent me to do good works. God sent me to change things. And so I'm fulfilling God's law on the Sabbath, and that's okay. I'm not breaking God's law by following God's law. That's not how it works. God sent Jesus to heal the sick, so he healed the sick, even if it happened to be on the Sabbath. You see, the people didn't really care about upholding God's law. They, killed, they cared about holding up their self-righteousness. People have become extremely self-righteous, and Jesus here is showing that he is a self-righteous eliminator. Jesus has turned the table on the people. He said, like, hey, even you who think you are righteous, you are so sinful. The pious Jews of the day compared themselves to the worst of the worst, and they said, look, at least I'm not that bad, right? So then Jesus came to say, are you better than me? They kept the letter of the law, but they had no idea what the heart of the law really was. Jesus came to show that fulfilling the intent of the law 
And, and sorry, that he came to show that fulfilling the intent of the law was important. And he showed us what it looked like to completely fill the law. Not to break it, not to change it, but to fill it. What does it look like to actually fulfill God's law? Not by execution, but by intent. There was now going to be a new measuring stick for righteousness. It would be Jesus. And it would be that stick forever. And comparatively, they and we fall woefully short when we measure up to Jesus. We cannot truly think ourselves righteous next to his example. He was a self-righteousness eliminator because he knew that self-righteousness chokes out the need for grace. If you could be righteous on your own, you wouldn't need grace. And because Jesus' entire mission was to come to extend grace, then that means that if you are self-righteous, you don't need Jesus. And because Jesus came to eliminate self-righteousness, it changed the game. It changed how we see God. But to take it a step further, if we don't see that we need grace, then we're not going to see that others need grace extended. And then we will become a bitter, resentful, and miserable people to be around. And folks, the church has been that for a while. The church was some miserable folks to be around. Some churches, not all churches, but the Big C Church hasn't done a great job of being a joyful, wonderful people to be around. For, for a while, we've been miserable because we look at self-righteousness and we don't think we need grace, so we don't extend grace to others. I know that I don't like people who look down on me. Do you? Do you like people who say, like, because of X, Y, or Z, I'm better than you? I don't, but even more than not liking them, I don't like when I am them, and sometimes that happens. So how, what, what question do we ask? How do we measure self-righteousness in our own life? I think this, this question nails it. What do you accuse in others that you excuse in yourself? What do you accuse in others that you excuse in yourself? Do you see others and think how cocky and prideful they are while you bully yourself bully your way around your family in your office? Do you just loathe those people at work who gossip about everything but fudging a few numbers or spending a little bit of your work time on some personal stuff? That, that's not such a big deal, right? Do you accuse others of sexual perversion while excusing your own addiction to pornography or those gazes that linger on someone that isn't your spouse just a little too long? You write it off as something that's natural or I just can't help it. It's normal. Folks, self-righteousness affects how we love God, and it affects how we love people. Self-righteousness literally attacks the greatest commandment that Jesus gave to us as Christ followers, to love God with all we have and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Self-righteousness robs us of the ability to do both, and that is why Jesus was a self-righteousness eliminator. Jesus wants to eliminate our self-righteousness and replace it with a love for giving and receiving grace. Because that's what he came to do. John chapter 7 verse 25 says this. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Yet look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know he's the Messiah? 
But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he's from. As he was teaching in the temple, Jesus cried out, You know me and you know where I'm from, yet I have not come on my own. But the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Then they tried to seize him. Yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. However, many from the crowd believed in him and said, when the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man has done. Really? Jesus really throws down the gauntlet here. The Jews prided themselves on God being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. They felt that they knew him. His law was given to them. His promise, his covenant was given to them, and they knew that the Messiah would come from them. And yet here Jesus says, you don't even know him. Because if you knew him, you would see that I am the fulfillment of everything that he is. Remember, Jesus was the ultimate self-disclosure of God. Jesus didn't come to fix all the things of the Old Testament God. He came to fulfill all the things of the Old Testament God, which is why we've spent time in the Old Testament looking at that and showing that Jesus was the plan all along, that the way that God delivered his people was the same all along. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. That Jesus completely fulfilled everything that God was. And when face to face with their God, Yahweh, Elohim, Adonai, El Shaddai, when faced with God Almighty, they didn't know him. They rejected him because of their self-righteousness. Because they were looking for a Messiah that would free them from Roman oppression. So they learned that Jesus was a sin exposer. They learned that he was a submission encourager. They learned that he was a self-righteous eliminator. And then the people came to this, the right conclusion. Well, he must be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who would free them from oppression once and for all. See, they understood at this point that Jesus is an oppression eradicator. They were about to learn the truth that we now have the privilege of knowing that Jesus eradicated oppression of sin and death the oppression of sin and death are the core from which all other oppression comes from. Racial, ethnic, gender, class, religious, economic, institutional, and other all other types of oppression, they will cease when Jesus returns and when we are like him. When there is no sin, when there is no shame, when there is no death. And if we were all looking like Jesus, there would be no oppression because Jesus eradicated it. But see, the Jews were thinking too small. Just like the Babylonians had, and then just like the Persians had, and then just like the Romans had, there would always be another, another powerful people group to come and raise up and to take over and to conquer them. Because Jesus knew that sin was really the problem. So instead of saying, hey, I'll free you from the Romans just so someone else can come take you over, I'm going to free you from the actual enemy. I'm going to free you from what really is going to cause you to die. I'm going to free you from what actually holds you, and that is sin. He went to the root of the problem. He eradicated sin's power, and he gave us the opportunity to become free and to have her freedom to choose his will and to choose his ways and not our own. Sin is the root, and it's been cut out, friends. 
Jesus ended oppression on the cross, and he rose into a new world where we could be free from it once and for all, and we could live eternally. So my final question to you is where are you living under the oppression of sin? Even though God stepped out of heaven and put himself on a cross, gave his one and only son for us to free us from oppression, where do we still allow sin to be? Where are you still a slave to the ways of sin and death? Is it in your addictions? Is it in the way you treat your children or your spouse or your friends? Is it in the way that you view vulnerable people? Is it in your comparison to others? Maybe it's just in your commitment to your plans over God's plans. Friends, sin has no power unless we give it power in our lives. We have been made free from its grip. So I want us to find the place that it still clings to our soul. And I want it to be exposed and submitted to God through his spirit and to eliminate it in our lives. Eliminate the self-righteous soil in which it has found a home and allow Jesus to eradicate that oppression. Friends, Jesus is an oppression eradicator. And yet, sin still clings to us. It clings to our very soul. So just like I did last week, I'm going to invite us into a time of reflection. Just one minute. I'll time it on my watch. One minute to answer this question. Where are you living under the oppression of sin? When I come back up, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And there's a pretty clear warning in Scripture to come to the table of God with a repentant heart. And so I think that, that this is the kindest thing that, that I as a pastor can do for you. Allow you to search your heart, to see where sin is still clinging to you. Expose it. Let Jesus eradicate it so that we can go to the table with pure hearts. So for one minute, Jason's just going to strum a little bit I just want us to contemplate. I want us to ask God for forgiveness, and then we'll go to the table together.